You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we continue with our series on the book of Mark. We come to verses 31 to 35. And as our reading this afternoon, we have the verses 20 to 35 of Mark 3. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. But they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Here we come to the text for this afternoon. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Beloved congregation, Lord Jesus, we're just emerging from that time of year where family is on our minds a lot. Most of us, the holiday season is where we spend much more time with our families. However, not everybody is quite so blessed. As we enjoyed our holiday get-togethers in safety and security, approximately 2,500 Canadian troops were carrying on with their dangerous mission in Afghanistan. On Christmas Day, perhaps some of you saw this as well, some of them were able to get together for a short dinner. Some were also able to participate in a service put on by some of the chaplains. In an interview, one of them said that he was celebrating Christmas with family, just not with his blood family back home. His fellow soldiers had become his family in Afghanistan. And this illustrates the fact that family ties don't necessarily run through blood. In fact, sometimes certain kinds of family ties can even be deeper and closer where there is no blood relation. When people are there for each other through thick and thin, when they've carried each other's burdens, oftentimes blood means relatively little, if anything. 
And it's this question of family that's front and center in our text this afternoon. The Lord Jesus is confronted with the expectations of his blood family. And at this particular moment, he reveals the identity of his true family. That's our theme for the sermon. And we'll consider the outsiders in this family and then also the insiders. Well, to get a grasp on what's happening here, we need to go back a few verses, back to verses 20 to 21. There the Lord Jesus had gone into a crowded house, a house so packed that taking care of his basic needs was impossible. Mark relates that his family set out to rescue him. Rather than embracing his identity as the Son of God, rather than believing in him and his mission, his family exclaimed that he'd gone insane. They thought that he'd gone overboard with some some kind of ego trip or something. So they went after him. And so in verses 20 to 21, they had set out from Nazareth. They were journeying over to Capernaum, which was maybe about a distance of about 30 to 40 kilometers, not very far. Now when we come to verse 31, we find them arriving at the house where he was staying. Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, they finally arrive on the scene. And when they arrive, they stand around outside and they send someone in to call for Jesus. Now, why are they standing outside? Well, presumably, because the situation described in verse 20 is still the case. There are just too many people, and they just can't get inside. But that raises another question. Why haven't they been at Jesus' side all along? What were they doing in Nazareth while the Son of God was teaching in Capernaum. Earlier in chapter 3 and verse 8, we're told that people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon. They'd come from all over the place. Complete strangers. But his own family couldn't be bothered to make the short trek from Nazareth in Galilee to Capernaum in Galilee. What was their problem? Well, when it comes to Jesus' brothers, John 7 verse 5 gives us a clear answer. We read in John 7 verse 5 that even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, later on, that changes. They do eventually believe in Christ, and we find the evidence of that in the book of Acts. They're included in the early church. But at this particular moment, his family, at least his brothers for sure, are unbelievers. Now consider the great danger that their unbelief put them in. First of all, they knew the Lord Jesus more intimately than anyone else. They had grown up with him. They had spent hours and hours with him, as family members do. Yet they reject him. Even if they could get inside the house in Capernaum, they wouldn't come inside to listen, to hear what Jesus has to say, to believe what he has to say. 
Second, apart from being Jesus' family, these were not just some Joe Blow people in the Roman Empire. Jesus' brothers had been circumcised on the eighth day. They had received the Old Testament sign and seal of God's covenant. They were part of God's covenant people who should have been eagerly longing for and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And now the Messiah has come. After all those years, he's even a member of their own family. And they blow him off. They even try to stop him. They try to put the brakes on his ministry. This put the family of Jesus in great danger. Because according to Jesus' own words, the covenant people who heard his preaching and teaching, who heard the gospel, they were going to be responsible for what they had heard. If they remained on the outside, refusing to come in and listen, there would be a harsh judgment. In fact, Jesus says their judgment would be harsher than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine how much harsher the judgment for Jesus' own family, who had spent all that time with him, who had been regularly exposed to his person and work, to his preaching, teaching, and healing, and yet they choose to reject him. As I mentioned in the nature of the case, God saved Jesus' family from the great danger in which they were at the time of our text. They came to believe in him, and we can be sure that they're with him to this day. But then there's us. While we haven't grown up seeing Jesus physically, face to face, we've been so richly blessed in other ways, haven't we? Most of us have grown up in the covenant of grace. We were baptized. We received the sign and seal of God's covenant. We've grown up or we are growing up in Christian homes. Go to church each Sunday. His promises have been clearly announced to each one of us. Now consider the great danger that we would be in if we would remain in unbelief or if we were to turn our backs on the faith and go back to unbelief. Consider the great peril if we would stay on the outside looking in like Jesus' family in our text. If we were to think that Jesus Christ is good for others, but for us, we've got more important things to do, more important things to be concerned about right now. The loved ones, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to the gospel call. And neither is deliberate neglect. Listen to the warning message that we find in Hebrews 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, 
It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Loved ones, I urge you, please hear that warning and heed it. Don't be on the outside. The fact that you were raised in a Christian home is not going to save you. The fact that you went to a Christian school is not going to save you. Your membership in the church, as important as it is, is not either. The only one who saves is Jesus Christ. And you need to be looking to Him. You need to be looking to Him now. Not tomorrow, not not 20 years from now or some other point in the future, but now, right now. Now, I've been here in Langley less than three years. And do you know what has most impressed me so far in my time here among you? I'll tell you. Being at the bedside of elderly brothers and sisters who are dying and hearing their utter and complete dependence on Christ alone for salvation. Every time this happens, I'm in awe. It it blows me away. I'm blown away by God's grace and His miracle of regeneration. I'm so taken at what Christ has done for sinners. I'm so deeply impressed with the work of the Holy Spirit. If it were possible, I wish that every single one of you could be there standing with Pastor Vischer and I as we hear these testimonies of faith. These brothers and sisters, they truly die well with Jesus Christ on their hearts and lips as their only hope. And what enormous comfort this gives to those who are left behind. And let me address the younger people in our church. You may think that death is many years away. Perhaps, but you don't know that. Many of you know how in this past year there were several tragic deaths of young people from our churches in Manitoba. Listen to me carefully. You have one life. And it may be over at any time. Your one life counts for eternity. Don't waste it. When God calls your number, you want to be found like our elderly brothers and sisters with Christ alone on your heart and on your lips. With Jesus Christ alone as your hope for salvation. Live well with your faith focused on Christ alone so that when you die, and unless Christ returns, all of us will die. When you die, your family and friends will be comforted, saying that you lived well and you died well. You lived and died with Christ as your only comfort. And not only will that result in reassurance for those left behind, not only will that give comfort to your family and friends, it will also result in people being impressed with the God of grace. People being taken with Jesus Christ and all His beauties and perfections. People being in wonderment at the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. 
Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you want? And throughout history, there have been countless examples of people who have lived and died in this very way. And in our text, we find a largely nameless crowd of such people sitting around the Lord Jesus. I say they were largely nameless because we do know that Jesus' disciples were there with him. We do know their names. But there were also many others. We don't know them. Nevertheless, verse 32 tells us that they were sitting around him. What were they doing? Well, from the context, it's obvious that they were listening to Jesus' teaching. The picture here is of a rabbi with his students gathered around at his feet. His crowd of students tells him that his mother and brothers are outside looking for him. And as they tell him, you get the sense that their expectation is that he's going to interrupt his teaching, he's going to stop right where he is, and he's going to go and he's going to speak with his family, maybe even go with them. But as he often does, the Lord Jesus overturns their expectations and he does something surprising. He says something surprising. It comes in the form of a question. Who are my mother and my brothers? Now the crowd expected that Jesus' relationship to his family, his blood relationship, would take priority over them and what he was doing with them at that moment. Seen in that way, Jesus' question may even seem rude to some people. Worse yet, the fifth commandment says that we're to honor our father and our mother. Jesus doesn't seem to be honoring his mother with the way he responds here. So what about it? Did Jesus break the fifth commandment? Not at all. He showed no disrespect for his mother, what he said here. He did not reject her, nor did he disobey her. This isn't about the fifth commandment. Nor is it about how to relate to one's family, as if we should come to this text looking for ten tips on how to deal with difficult family members. Rather, the the issues at stake here are priorities and identity. Who is the true family of Jesus? And so, who takes priority in his life and ministry at this moment? In verse 34, he answers this question. And first of all, notice his nonverbal communication. He looks around at those seated in a circle around him. He gives a glance to the disciples who are sitting at his feet, looking to him looking up to him as their teacher, their rabbi. And then the words come off his lips. Here are my mother and my brothers. These are the ones who are inside the true family of Jesus. And then to expand on that a bit further, he adds, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, whoever does the will of God is in Jesus' true family. But that should right away raise the question, what does Jesus mean by the will of God? 
Now that expression, the will of God, is found many times in the Bible. But here in this context, it simply refers to God's will that people sit at the feet of Jesus. That they look to him in faith. That they learn from him as their Lord and teacher. The will of God here is simply that people would be humble students of the Lord Jesus. It's these humble students of Christ that are inside his true family. Now, you've probably heard the saying that blood is thicker than water. When people say that, they mean that the bonds of family relationships and common ancestry are, are stronger than those between people who are unrelated. Blood is thicker than water. And originally, the water in this expression referred to the water of baptism. In other words, family relationships, according to this saying, are deeper than spiritual relationships. Well, the Lord Jesus turns this upside down. He says, no, my true family is found with those who are my disciples, those who have been baptized and who learn from me. Christ says, for me, the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. So to be in Jesus' family, we're called to sit at his feet and learn from him. Now, of course, we can't literally sit at his feet today. So how are we supposed to take this into our lives? To rephrase the question, how and where does Jesus teach us today? Well, first, he teaches us, teaches us directly in his word. As we read and study the Bible, we are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Christ teaches us with his word and spirit as we read scripture, as we carefully and prayerfully reflect on it. And as we read the word, our eyes are more directed to Christ. He was the one who said in John 5.39 and other places, that the scriptures testify about him. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read our Bibles, more and more our eyes are opened to the revelation of Christ therein, and we fix our eyes on him. The school of Jesus begins when we open our Bibles with the prayer that the Greeks had in John 12, 21. Remember the Greeks who came to the disciples? You know what they said? We wish to see Jesus. That has to be our prayer. But the school doesn't stop there. We continue to sit at the feet of Jesus as we hear his word preached each Sunday. When the scriptures are faithfully proclaimed by ministers, Christ himself is speaking to us through that word. Romans 10.17 is a well-known passage says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And we might say, does, does Christ speak a word directly to those who believe so as to create faith? He doesn't do that anymore. We look at Romans 10 and we look at the context, we know that the word of Christ that is being referred to there is the preaching. 
And so it's not an exaggeration to say that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Christ continues to speak to us each time the Word is opened and faithfully proclaimed. And so when we're in church, we are in the school of Jesus, sitting at His feet, looking to be led and to be taught by our Savior, sitting with open hands, looking for for Christ to, to fill those hands, looking for Christ to bless us. This is how we will be in the true family of Jesus. But now let's think some more about what that really means, what it means to be in his family. Well, when you're in a family, you're with a group of people who normally love you, no matter what. Of course, we recognize right away that there are dysfunctional, broken, or even abusive families where this doesn't apply, where none of what I'm going to say applies. And of course, even the the best families are still made up of sinners and still go through rough times. But God's plan for a family, the pattern for a family, is that it is a place where there is love, where there's unconditional love, where there's acceptance, where you belong. Ideally, families are havens. They are places of safety and security. A place where you're free to be yourself without judgment, fear of judgment or condemnation. That's what you find in the true family of Jesus. And loved ones, you were adopted into this kind of a family. In this family, you have a heavenly father who loves you deeply and who is intimately involved with your life. Involved with your life down to the very last detail. This father adopted you, made you his own. He treats you the same as his own natural son. This father wants to hear your voice speaking to him in prayer. In this family, you have a father. You also have a brother, an elder brother. Do you know what this elder brother calls you? He calls you his friend. This elder brother gave himself for you so that you would join him in the family as an adopted child. This elder brother perfectly obeyed God's law for you so that you would be declared right with the Father, that your position would be safe and secure. This is a family from which you cannot be disowned. This is a family where your position doesn't depend on what you do or on whether or not you measure up. This is a family, loved ones, where the love is better than unconditional. You can imagine that. Say it with me in your hearts. The elder brother gave himself for me, a sinner. The Father loves me despite how I am and despite my many failings and weaknesses. In this family, God blesses me because His Son fulfilled the conditions I could never achieve. Contrary to what I deserve, I am loved and accepted. This is the ultimate 
gracious family, the family of grace, the gospel family. Believe it, loved ones. And in this family, we have God the Father, we have Jesus Christ the Son, our elder brother, but we also have one another. This is not just a family of three. It includes all who believe in Christ, who look to Him as their Lord and Savior. And where we experience this family is here. Primarily here, in this local church. The church is meant to have the character of a family. Now that's why we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Now some of you have unbelievers in your families. You'll often hear such people say, and maybe you've said it too, that you're closer to your brothers and sisters in the church than you are to the unbelieving family member. That's normal. That's the way it should be. When we are part of Christ's family, we have bonds of love and affection for one another that unbelievers can't share. When we're part of the Christian family, We have the things that are most important in this world in common. We have a shared redemption in Christ. We have a common experience of the wonder of grace. We have a commitment to Christ and a passion for the glory of God. Here in the church, we have a local expression of the family of Jesus Christ. Now this raises the the question about the health of our family. How are we doing as a family? Does belonging to this church make you feel like you belong to Jesus' family? Now, of course, there could be a variety of answers to that question, and some of those answers may depend on how much effort you put into making the church feel like a family. But having said that, I think one thing we need to be cautious about, one thing we need to be very self-aware about, is the impact that the size of our church has on the character of our church as a family. And we're now over the 650 mark, and apparently we're continuing to grow, continue to be the largest Canadian Reformed church, And to be honest, there are advantages to being large. There are many extra things that we can do just because we are a large church. But all of this should never come at the expense of the family and its health. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we want to be large? Do we want to be a large church? Is this the best way to facilitate spiritual growth among the members of the family? Now, there are those who resist the idea of a split. Why is that? Is it because we have our comfort zone here? Is it because we can hide out in a large church? We don't have to be accountable for how we live or for what we believe? We need to ask these questions and and others of ourselves. Do we really have the best interests 
of the family at heart. And it may very well happen that we say, yes, continuing to be a large church is the best thing for the family. Perhaps that's the conclusion we'll reach. Well, if that's the case, then we also need to find ways to enhance, to strengthen the family character of our church. And we should do that anyways, regardless of what we decide about having a large church. After all, having a small church is no guarantee that your church is going to be a healthy family. So we need to be deliberate in enhancing and strengthening the family character, no matter what. That means that we we have to be, sounds strange, but we have to be hunters and killers when it comes to cliques. Can't have cliques. It doesn't fit with family character of a church. Positively, we need to create or sustain family relationships within the community that cut across the boundaries of blood. One way that's often mentioned to do that is cell groups. And there's been some talk about that in the past. Well, we've already got our various Bible study groups which function or should function in that capacity. And so let me ask you, if the church doesn't feel like a family to you, are you going to a Bible study group in the church? Are you being actively involved? Those who aren't going, if you want to be part of the family, you need to find one. And those of us who are involved with Bible study groups, we have to be deliberate and intentional about using these to enhance the family spirit the family character of our church. We have to be also eagerly willing to welcome others into these gatherings, these more, you could say, intimate family gatherings where we sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus together and we learn from his word. Now let's make this a bit more concrete. It's not concrete enough already. Every time we have new members in the church, we announce them from the pulpit. We also publish their names in the church news. We also put the the pictures of our new members up on the bulletin board in, in the foyer. Take it upon yourself to watch for those new members, to welcome them into our church, and invite them to your Bible study, into your intimate family circle. Make them quickly feel that they've arrived home into the family who loves them and cares for them wants to see them involved, wants to see them growing. Loved ones, we are Jesus' true family. And all, as always, the call goes out for us to be who we are. We're called to sit at the feet of our Lord, our elder brother and teacher, and learn from him. We're also called to embrace one another in this family. And since our Lord Jesus himself said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. We should also humble ourselves in prayer and ask for his help. Let's do that right now. Lord Jesus, our teacher, our Lord, our elder brother, we do indeed humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge you as the only worthy member of the family. 
the only one who deserves to be in this family. We thank you that through you we have been adopted and included alongside you. We praise you for not being ashamed to call us your family, though we deserve quite the opposite. Please help each and every one of us to constantly humble ourselves before you and to sit in your school. Help us to do that our whole life long so that at the end we would die with your name on our lips and on our hearts as our only hope. Lord God, we thank you for your love and grace. Help us with your word and spirit as we live in your family, also as we live in the family in this local church. We pray that you would give us more grace so that we would have big hearts for each other, also for those who you would bring in from elsewhere. Oh, Lord God, cause us to grow in love for one another and for you. We pray that you would help us to have a healthy church family. It makes much of you. Father, we pray that you would hear our prayer. In the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.